Presenting Danforth Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are pleased to have Dallas Maverick CEO, Sint Marshall, who became the first African-American woman to serve as CEO of a team in the National Basketball Association. Sint Marshall joined the Dallas Mavericks in 2018. Raised in Richmond, California, Sint grew up in difficult situations, but received a scholarship to the University of California at Berkeley, becoming the first African-American cheerleader in the school's history. After graduating, Sint spent more than three decades at AT AT&T, rising to become the company's Senior Vice President of Human Resources and Chief Diversity Officer the first African-American to head the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce, Sint has been recognized by a wide range of organizations for her achievements, including being named by Worth Magazine as one of the 21 most powerful women in the business of sports. A stage three cancer survivor, Sint and Dr. Montgomery Rice will discuss her rise from humble beginnings to becoming a leading executive her approach to leadership, and the challenges facing diversity, equity, and inclusion today. Now for this month's episode, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to the Danforth Dialogues. We have been fortunate to have quite a few of our guests who were the first person to achieve a major milestone in their life's journey. But our guest today certainly stands out from the crowd. First, she was the first African-American woman to be a cheerleader at her alma mater. I was a cheerleader in high school, but Georgia Tech didn't let me be a cheerleader at Georgia Tech. Uh, But she was at the University of California, Berkeley. That was probably her first introduction (laughs) to what it really means to be the first of something. But then she became the first black woman to become the CEO of an NBA team. And to my knowledge, she didn't play basketball. No, I did not. (laughs) She took over the helm of the team as it was being challenged with a host of diversity and harassment issues. And then just over five years, which is really a short amount of time, she turned the team into what many of us would describe as the model of inclusion and diversity and I hope she's gonna tell us about belonging also, that has really resonated throughout the league and more importantly though, the business community. As she and I talked, there is a business case for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And I'm sure you're gonna find as I have that she's an inspiring leader who understands how to build winning organizations Welcome to the Danforth Dialogue Cent. Thank you so much, Dr. Valerie. Thank you for inviting me, uh, having me on this campus, having me at the School of Medicine. Oh my goodness, I am just overwhelmed. Uh, This place is historic and I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to be able to first talk about your journey. You know, I am fond of saying to people, everybody has a story. And one of the ways that I think we create belonging 
is that we share our story and all of the challenges and opportunities that our story has given us. So you grew up in Richmond, California. Then you went to University of California at Berkeley. Tell us about this pathway for what happened after Berkeley that really got you to be the CEO of an NBA team. So we'll talk about the African-American part of it, but you also yes. are the CEO of an NBA team. There's yes. not that many of them, are there? Uh, 30. That's There's it. 30 That's of it. us That's and it. just about now, I think, four or five women. I was the second woman, the first black woman. Right. Uh, so we're, we're making some progress. Right. So I want to uh, hear about this journey, and I know yes. my audience does also. And it's been a, it's been a great journey. Uh, I, I accepted the job when uh, Mark Cuban called me uh, because I wanted to serve. And I had been a leader. I had been at AT&T. Uh, I was at AT&T for 36 years and had a variety of jobs, one being the president of AT&T in uh, North Carolina. And so I know we have a mutual uh, acquaintance, Vanessa Harrison, That's right, right, uh, who uh, uh, was on my team there. And so, you know, just had done a lot. But then I retired and said I was going to take a year off and, you know, pursue some other things that were coming my way. And then I got this call from uh, Mark Cuban. And he had, you know, some things going on uh, at the Mavs. And, I, you know, most people know, you know, what, what was happening there, the toxic culture and all that. And as I told you earlier, I had to pray about it. I didn't know Mark Cuban when he called me. And so I prayed about it, ended up saying yes uh, to that job. And I think he called me based on what he had heard about my background, what he had heard about, uh, you know, the work at AT&T to transform the culture and create a great place uh, to work. And I think my 36 years of experience in leading people and developing my leadership philosophy, and my leadership philosophy is real simple. It's three L's. I believe in order to be a truly effective leader that I have to do three things extremely well. I have to listen to the people, learn from the people, and love the people. Listen at a level where I can hear what they're not even saying. I learn from them, so being willing to in my case, I went to pole climbing school and learned how to climb poles and did all that early in my career at AT&T because I really wanted to understand what people did every day so I could serve them better because leadership is all about serving. I just truly wanted to be a servant leader. When I was recruited on Berkeley's campus to work for AT&T, I had like 13 job offers, but I told them, I said, I only have a few criteria. I want the job that pays me the most money. Mm -hmm. honest, of course, my, yeah. my, my mother, my family was still, you know, in the projects, still in poverty. So I wanted to help out. I said, I want the job that pays me the most money. And I want a job where I can be a leader. Like I want to be the boss coming in the door. And it wasn't about being the boss. It was about serving people. At 21 years old, I wanted to serve. And so that's what I did in my time at AT&T. And I had a lot of big jobs, great jobs, technical, non-technical staff, line, all that. But the common thread is I served these people. And I listen to them, I learn from them, and then I love them as people. And so that's apparently what Mark Cuban wanted uh, at the Dallas Mavericks. So you, you, you remind me of a couple of my other leaders who have been on the show, and they talk about this, this desire to serve. Where did that come from in, the, in your childhood experience? It was my mother. It was my mother. I uh, just served, and my mother went through a lot. Uh, with my father, I mean, as we we all did, domestic violence, um, just very abusive situation. When they divorced when I was 15, um, my mother came back, and he had taken just about everything uh, from us. And her whole focus was her children. Uh, her children uh, came first. She still served the community. 
Uh, she was just all about other people, not even her own circumstances, and just knew that the Lord would take care of her if she took care of others. And so I watched my mother serve, not just us, but I watched her serve other people. I watched her help raise other children. I mean, she was always putting her heart out there. And I, I got it from her. And so she taught us at a very early age, the scripture that says, to whom much is given, much is required. And so once, you know, I started getting a little something, I said, okay, I'm going to give even more. I'm going to give even more. And it's not just, you know, treasure, but it's time and it's talent, and you serve with your heart. And I got that from her. Wonderful. And so I'm, I'm glad she's my mom. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, you also talked about when, and you and I had an earlier conversation, but you talked about when, when uh, Mark called you. Yes. And he talked to you about what he wanted you to do, and you told him you had to go into your prayer room. <laughs> yes. I said I had to pray about it. He says, okay, and see, this, this is what I love about my boss. Uh-huh. You know how when you talk to somebody and they make you feel like you are the only person in the on room. Earth. Yeah. Like you're the only person in the room. And that's how that's how Mark Cuban is. And he just looked at me and he leaned over. He said, I said, Well, you know, I need to pray about it. And he didn't just say, Okay, well, you know, I'll talk to you tomorrow. He said, Okay, tell me about that. Tell me about that. Like, where do you do this? Like, how are you gonna pray about it? Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in my fir- very first conversation with Mark Cuban talking about this prayer closet, and I described it to him, the tapestry on the wall, all that, and how I have my little sticky notes, and I put people's names and situations on there. Now, did fact, you put his name on a sticky note? In fact, note? I told him, I said, when I go home, I'll put your name on a sticky note, because y'all got some stuff going on in here. Okay, so I'll put your name on a sticky note, too. And so he was just fascinated with that, but he was so interested mm-hmm. in just what I had to say. And he's he's been like that for six years. Uh, very, just very interested in me, the story, my life, what I do, all that kind of stuff. So it's great to have a boss like that. And I have a new boss now. So, uh, but Moss, I mean, Mark is still. So this authenticity that definitely comes out with you, how has that helped you in your leadership journey, particularly when you have had challenging situations? Okay, I love, I love, love, love this question. It's helped me a lot. And so I'll tell you a, a quick story. When I was the president of AT&T in North Carolina, they asked me, some, an organization asked me if I could come and talk to uh, their kids, uh, some under-championed uh, uh, kids. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to. So they told me about the organization. And one of the guys, uh, he was the publisher of our magazine, I mean, our newspaper. And he says, Sam, I know a little bit about your story. Would you mind sharing your story with these kids? Because a lot of these kids grew up like you grew up. And I said, I'll be happy to. And so I went and I called my mom and I said, okay, I'm... I want to tell our story. I want to talk to these kids, really let them know how, you know, with the, the right support, the right mindset, um, you know, working hard, handling your educational business. So I had this whole thing I was going to talk about. I said, but I want to tell them the whole story. I, don't, I, I just don't want to play any games. And so my mother says, you can tell the story because, you know, God, God brought us through a lot. And so that was the first time publicly that I told my whole story. And the response was incredible. Of course, it inspired the kids, but it inspired the adults. And to the point that you made earlier, it made more people start to tell their story. Right, right. Because we all have a story. We all I have mean, a we story. all have a story. And so then it made, I guess, you know, I was the new president of AT&T North Carolina. It made me more real and personable and authentic uh, not just to the policymakers and people we have to deal with, 
but also the community, the people who were out there really, you know, that we wanted to support the company. So it made me real to the end. And it was like something just unleashed in me after that. And I said, I will never be ashamed to tell my story. I will tell it as much as I'm asked uh, to tell it, because if it inspires people, if my authenticity and who I am uh, brings out better, wherever that is, that I'm going to do that. And I didn't always feel that free. Um, I, I had a situation once where I had a boss when I was getting promoted to officer of the company who basically told me about the promotion, but then she asked me to uh, change my name. She says, you can't be sent. You have to be Cynthia mm. or Cindy because Cindy. nobody. Cindy. Cindy. Yes. Mm. Well, I grew up, I grew up sent. I, I didn't grow up. Cindy. I know some Cindy's, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I grew up scent. Mm -hmm. And so she says, nobody knows what a scent is. I've never heard that before. I'm like, hmm, I know a few scents. Okay, where I grew up yeah, right, right. In, in, in Richmond, California, in the projects. And, and so then she said, and I need you to cut your hair. Because she says, and in fact, she had seen, I guess it was a Black Enterprise magazine or something. But it was some magazine with these black people on it. The women had their hair short. You she know, probably saw Halle Berry and thought we all could wear a Halle Berry uh, hairstyle. Yeah, hello. Okay, okay. yeah, all right, yeah. And then they all had white on. She says, and get you some white outfits. So then she started telling me what to wear. She told me to get some St. John. So I listened mm -hmm. to that part. And so <laughs> <laughs> I listened to that part. But then she got to a point, uh, Valerie, where she ended up saying, and I don't want you to laugh so loud. I don't want all these people in your office. So you're going to have to kind of cut the people away. And you can't use the word blessed. You have to say lucky. I'm like, okay, it's, it's getting kind of crazy right now. And so my husband was in the background, okay, because he knows that I'm getting this call about a promotion. And it's the highest rank you can go in the company, right? And so when I was talking about the haircut piece, he was in the background saying, I got a barber. He'll give you a nice cut. Like, we're going to do what needs to be done, right? But when it got to the part about literally saying, changed my name, and I can't use the word blessed. And so I told her, I said, you know what? I am so honored, you know, by this promotion. I'm the officer of the company. It's only 110 of us, right, in 200,000-plus person company. I said, but you are asking me to fundamentally change who I am. I said, now, when I first got to this company, and I love this company, I had a boss whose boss asked me to take my braids down and told me I couldn't wear red shoes. And I was 21 years old, and I listened to her. because And, and, and honestly, I think she was well-intended because she wanted me to look like all the guys I was in this fast-track management program with. And so she was giving me the advice, honestly, that at the time worked. And so I went home. I mean, later, I just started. I'm 21 years old. Stayed, you know how long it takes to take down your braids? Yeah, yeah. So I was taking all those braids down. I wasn't even thinking about the money I paid to get them done. But I was taking all those braids down. My sister came over with some an outfit for me and some little black shoes, and they got me ready because of what this woman said. So here it is 19, 20 years later, and I just said, uh-uh. I said, you know what? We started out this way. I'm almost 40 years old now. It's not going down like this. And I just said, I, I, I don't accept the promotion. And at that time, I was more worried about just keeping my vice president job. I said, so help me figure out. So I asked this woman, I said, help me figure out how to turn this down, but do it in a way where I, I keep my job. I mean, I need my job. My family's relying on me, my extended family. And she says, okay, let me, she says, I think that's the right decision. 
mean, because clearly in her mind, right, right. right. This is I what you need to do enough, to succeed. Right? Right, right. And, and I wasn't, you know, so this was fine with her that I said no. And so she helped me figure out the right words. She said she would convey, you know, the message. Uh, because I said, you, you can't tell me not to say the word blessed. Because what if I don't think I'm lucky? What if I believe I'm blessed? If I, what do, if I know that I'm blessed? And so we came up with this whole uh, kind of the way we were going to turn down the promotion. And, she, and it was good. And I, I actually felt good about it. I hung up. My husband was sick. He's like, I cannot believe this. I said, at some point, you just have to draw the line. Because I, ha I have to be okay with being sent. Coaching is one thing. Because I'm all for coaching. People need to be coached. Sometimes you don't know what the culture is. And some things you just, you don't know. But to fundamentally ask me to change who I am and not to accept that, I just decided that was not okay. And fortunately, I was in the position at that particular time where I can make that decision. Because oftentimes, as you well know, you can't make that decision. Right, right. You, for a lot of variety of reasons, you got to go with it. And so I turned it down. And then a few minutes later, her boss called, and then the chairman of AT&T called. And he said, sent, sent. He put the emphasis on it. He said, I just heard what happened. We're going to start this all over again. Good. And he offered me the job. He told me he knew exactly who I was. He said, I know you're a woman of faith. I like that. And he described me to a T. He said, that's the person we're promoting to officer. That's the person who I want to walk into uh, the office tomorrow. And so to have a leader like that who basically just unleashed me to be who I am, and then I get to North Carolina, and I feel even more free to be who I am with the community and all that, and I'm telling you, I've been out ever since. You know, you really—I'm glad that you took the time to really share the details of this story, because I was having a conversation with a colleague this morning, and I know that many of our employees, no matter what environment you work in, whether you think you're working in a safe environment or not, right. they don't always feel that they can bring their authenticity to work that they can bring their best self. And so no matter how many times you say as a leader, we actually hired you. We didn't hire some facsimile of you. We actually hired you. you. So what is the message that you would say to a young person? Let's say it's a person who's an LGBTQ, who is, and, I'm, and I know I probably left out some other right, right, uh, but, identification, but so please forgive me, I know your but point. you know what I'm saying. Yes. Um, but what if there's a person who doesn't feel that they can bring their significant other or their wife or their partner to work and to work events. How do we convey a message to them that when we say inclusion, we mean it and we mean it. And that is how we demonstrate belonging. Exactly. I think, first of all, I think uh, we have to make sure that we're in a place that really, really just not talks it, but they walk it. So at the Mavs, we have, when I got to the Mavs, we laid out a, a set of values. And our, our values spell crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, character, respect, authenticity, fairness, teamwork, and safety. And we talk a lot about, and, and that safety is physical and emotional safety. So we talk about our crafts, we talk about perfecting our crafts, and we stress authenticity. And one of the first things I will tell new employees, because I do the values piece, so I, I cover that with the new employees, and I talk about the fact that the person who gets up out of bed in the morning is the person who we want to walk in our doors. The dreams they have, who they are, their cultures, their background, their preferences, all of that. 
We don't want them to change. Yes, we might want you to like put some clothes on, you know, change out of your pajamas. Right, right, okay? right, but, right, right. But we want that person who gets up out of bed to walk in. And we try to practice that. And so when things come up, we try to make sure that it's not an issue of somebody not being accepted for who they are, because that's important to us. Authenticity matters. I think people have to, especially in a workplace, really assess whether or not you are in at a situation where an employer really values authenticity. Now, sometimes we have to work places where we don't want to work and we have to put up with things that we don't want to put up with because we have to eat and all that. But I, it's like what I tell my, I have four children. And so what I've told all four of mine when they got out of school is, do you? I said, now do you to a point. Right. Some of that stuff has to stay in the trunk of the car until, <laughs> until you figure out like what's happening in the place, okay? Right, right. Uh, because you know it's, it's you know places have cultures it's culture, and all that, and you got to respect that culture you have to when you walk the, in. You don't get to bring yours, you know. Exactly. So some of that stuff, but what you don't have to do is tolerate people's biases mm. and people's craziness because they have issues with things that they shouldn't have issues with. And so I talked to my and I talked to employees about that too. And so it's assessing that environment. I had an employee tell me one time, I had one-on-ones with every single employee at the MAPS when I got there. So my first 90 days, we had this whole 100-day plan, and I said, okay, by day 90, I will have met with every single person. And so one of the, uh, the young people there, uh, he had just got out of college, I think about two years prior to that. And he says, sin, it never dawned on me to ask an employer about their values or to go on our website or to look to see what the values are. Are. He said, I never thought about that. But that's the kind of thing you have to think about. Because if you, especially if you're in a situation where kind of the, the, the world is, is, is hating on you, because unfortunately we have a lot of hate right now, you've got to assess your own personal environment. And are you walking in that every day? And can you tolerate that? Or is there another environment you can be in that truly accepts you? And I think there are a lot of accepting environments right now. But it's being very de- deliberate about thinking about that. And so, Sin, I'm thinking, how does that permeate and impact the players? Oh, well, I, I, I love our players. Okay, so we have, people don't know this, we have one of the most international teams. We have eight international players. And so along with that, differences I mean, we've had to learn different cultures. If you walk in our office, we actually have the flags. We put those up recently about all those countries. So we really stress to them. Like, we, we want them to be themselves. I mean, that's what makes them great on the court. I mean, if they got to be somebody in the locker room and then somebody else on the court, that is crazy. It's too exhausting to have to be somebody. I mean, you know that. I mean, we, yeah, I know you could tell probably more <laughs> stories than I could tell about just how you have to change. It's too exhausting. And so we want our players to be themselves. And so that's the kind of culture, like Jason Kidd is our coach, Nico Harrison, our general manager. They assess that. I mean, they assess that. And then they, they want players who can bring themselves. And I mean, that's part of the chemistry, too, is you have all these different people working together. So we practice that on and off the court. And then hopefully you'll end up kind of seeing all those differences come together into something. To, to the success and that into you a winning culture. Right. It's to- part of a winning culture is to be able to accept people, be able to include people, and and all of it. And you, you mentioned belonging and all that. We try to lead with inclusion and belonging. And I, I often talk about the differences between diversity, equity, 
inclusion and all of that. Um, and, the, and, and I talk a lot about diversity is pretty much a fact. Okay, you can see. You're right, you we can have see differences. that. Yeah, right. But inclusion is a choice. We have to decide, are we truly going to include people? Yes, you can have a diverse workforce and all your demographics and all that. But are you truly going to have an inclus inclusion in your culture where people can actually be themselves? And then I do this whole example of diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. You can invite me to the party. You can have me as the only black woman at the table and not teach me the culture, not teach me the rules, not let me talk. Or are you truly going to let me participate in this dance? Are you going to let me off the sidelines? And so I do this whole lesson where I teach people the Cupid Shuffle. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And right. I, 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 I mean, literally, I have been in a room with like thousands of people. And I will say, how many of you know how to do the Cupid Shuffle? And a few hands might go up. Well, and now said, here you know everybody in Morehouse School of Medicine. Oh, yeah, see, see, I would, see, I wouldn't do it here. I wouldn't do it here because I wouldn't be able to, like, teach. I wouldn't be able to teach my <laughs> they lesson. They would teach us. Okay. okay. Teach oh, us. they teach us some new moves because it's so much stuff that's been out since the Cupid Shuffle, right? But it's, it's, it's wonderful when I do this lesson because then usually it's us. We get to teach other people how to dance. And then they get to see what it feels like when you are in a room a lot of people, and yes, you've been invited, but you really don't know the moves. You don't know what's happening. Mm, you don't know. It's great lesson. You don't know the language, but somebody has to stop and teach you and take the time. And I did this uh, for a big company one time, and their big CFO, he came and he was crying. I said, what's wrong? He says, sent. He said, that, that was one of the most powerful things I've experienced. He said, because you told the people who know how to do the Cupid Shuffle to come and teach all of us. He said, I had my hand up. You gave time for people to do it. Nobody found me. And I kept waving. Nobody mm -hmm. found me. Mm -hmm. He said, so then the whole room starts learning this lesson and all that. And five minutes later, everybody's in tune. And I'm the only one standing out, not knowing what to do, even though you told them to come and find me. He said, and all I can think about is this woman that I just promoted about six months ago. And she's been at my table. And we haven't included her. And he was sobbing. Mm, he mm. said, she's been on the sideline with her hand up. And we have not included her. We've cut her off in meetings. He said, I'm going to be different on Monday. It will be different. My next question was going to say, going to be like, you had this tremendous positive impact on the Mavericks organization. And, and tell me an experience. But that one that you just told me, I think all of us could resonate with that. And have felt that yes. one way or another. Right. And so I hope that people take to heart that it's not just about being invited. It is about actually being asked to dance. Asked to dance. And, and that we makes have a to big difference. So let me move to a point of how we manage in crisis. Yes. Because I don't know all the details of what happened when you took over the Mavericks, but I, there was a lot of stuff on the news. Lots. Yes. And so in a crisis... Leadership lessons for how we lead through crisis. Yes. Okay, so our recipe uh, is a, to me, was a pretty simple recipe. Yes, we had to put a lot of work into executing on it, but it started with laying out a vision. So even before I went and talked to the media, because it was all happening so fast, I met with our entire team. And I told them, I said, here's what I am getting ready to tell the media. So communication is key, because you have these people that are going through a crisis. Everybody is responding to it very differently. 
but my whole focus was on these people. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, well, it's a, it's a quote attributed to Teddy Roosevelt that says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's one of my favorite quotes. And so I truly cared about these people. So I tried to kind of have them in on everything that was happening to, because it's their, it's their workplace. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, I'm getting ready to go and do. So I told them why I accepted the job. I accepted the job because I feel like I was called to serve. And at the time, I did it for the sisterhood. I said, but you know what? I'm doing it for the sisterhood and the brotherhood. Uh, we are going to create a great place to work. We're going to get on that journey. So I said, our vision is to set the MBA standard on diversity and inclusion. Mm. I mean, that's where I started because I believe in a business case. Mm -hmm. If you want to have great results, if you want to have great fan engagement, you want to have great customer service, you want to have great financial results, you want to have great purchasing spend, uh, you want to win the war for talent, I can go on and on and on. You need to have, in my opinion, and I've lived it, so I have, I mean, it matters, a diverse workforce and an inclusive culture. You need to have diverse suppliers. You need to think about all, your whole fan base and all the cultures and reach out to them. So there's a lot that goes into it's all aspects okay. of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. And we even have a diversity, equity, and inclusion, like crafts for that, too. The customers, our reputation, a gender for women, our families. Yeah, I like the these acronyms, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. acronym green. Uh-huh. green okay? yeah. uh, talent and suppliers. So all that. And so, but it's the whole, it's the whole scope of it. Mm-hmm. You got to have all of it. So I talked about the business case to my team, mm-hmm. right? And so I laid out this vision that we were going to set the standard. And then I said, and we're going to operate with these values. So laid out the values. And then I said, I'm going to meet with everybody one-on-one, which I did. I met with every single person one-on-one to just find out how they were doing and just to get to know them. And I would start out by saying, give me your story. Talk to me. And usually they would say, oh, this is my seventh season at the Mavs, or this is my tenth season at the Mavs. And I said, were you born here? Right. right, right. Like, give me your story. Like, it's what you talked about earlier. I mean, you have a story. Like, I, I, I want to know who how, you are. How were you able to take the time to know that that was necessary when everything was blowing up externally and internally, and everybody was trying to get inside to learn even more? I heard a quote one time, and it was actually Kay Yao, who used to be one of the women's basketball coaches in North Carolina State. Uh, she had a, a quote that says, don't mistake the urgent for the important. Ooh, okay. So I knew what was important. We had a lot of urgent stuff going on, but I knew what was important. And the people in that building who were living through this crisis, who was watching all this stuff on the news about their employer, who, frankly— had been experiencing some of this stuff, the people were important to me. And so I had to stay focused on the people being my number one priority. And yes, we had an investigation going on. I had a parallel investigation going on that the NBA had, so we had a lot of crisis management to do. But crisis management is also internal because the crisis is impacting people. So we had to focus on people. And so I met with all of them, and so I'd ask them about their stories, but then I would close with, I said, tell me where you see yourself five years from now, professionally and personally, because my job as a leader is to help them get there. So by the time I got through all those uh, one-on-ones, we already had our 100-day plan. We added even more or we adjusted to the plan just based on what I heard from the people because you have to listen. And then we just executed on this plan to put kind of a zero-tolerance culture in place, a speak-up culture. And we're saying zero-tolerance. We're not saying things won't happen. But there are some things we just won't tolerate when they happen. So we kind of laid out a whole code of conduct and all that. And then a business agenda. Because keep in mind, 
we have a business to run. run. And so, but we're going to run that business in a very authentic, diverse, caring, engaging way with our people. And so we laid out the business agenda. We put a business plan process in place and we just had everybody engaged. And so every time we would check off one of these 200 initiatives, we did it in a big huddle with the whole work group. So everybody could celebrate it. Everybody could celebrate it. One, one time I jumped the gun and they called me on it. Like nobody was happy and celebrating. I said, what's going on here? And my HR person said, Sent, we're not covering that until Friday. So we haven't done that. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. But they called me on it, which I, which I love that. And so I think it was the vision, the values, that 100-day plan we had that everybody uh, engaged in. Uh, we managed external forces because we did have, you know, we put a great uh, kind of external uh, communication plan uh, in place, but we handled it internal and external. And I think sometimes that's what people miss. Crisis management is not just about managing the optics and the external aspects of it. The bigger piece for me is making sure that I manage the crisis that's right there in the building with the people and impacting the people. And we tried, we tried to do both. I mean, we didn't get everything. I mean, everything went perfect. And I'm sure I didn't say everything right and all that, but what you love, got there? I love the people, and we yeah, got that. We, we got, got there. there. So I'm going to change the subject a little bit. Let's talk okay. about some personal things. Okay, let's talk about personal. You shared with me, and, and I've seen it written about, your stage three yes. cancer diagnosis. And, and you were um, working like most women do, mm -hmm. uh, multitasking, yes. doing all the things that we do, and ignoring some of the signs and the symptoms, and even some of the directives that were being provided to you. There were some things that you might want to do. you want to share that story so that our listeners understand what sometimes could be the consequences of not listening to your doctor? Are you referring to that referral slip that my doctor gave me yes. that I never followed up on and yeah, put that on my nightstand? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that one, yeah. Uh, yes, well, um, yes, I did have a doctor give me a referral slip, and I just said, I'm healthy. I don't know anything about a colonoscopy. So I'm not going to get that done. I'm in good shape. And so I don't And I'm busy. And I'm busy. I don't have time for this. Okay, I don't have time for it. I'm raising four kids. I got a job. I just don't have time for it. And so I didn't do it. And so we were in a program called the Corporate Athlete. Uh, AT&T had this Corporate Athlete program to assess your physical, mental, spiritual, emotional health. And we did this little test. And I was off the charts great on all of them. And physical was okay. But I thought, you know, I had just stopped eating a lot of fried chicken and ding-dongs because I'm a foodie, right? So I had got myself together. I'm not going to kind of be more healthy, so I don't need to do anything. Well, they asked us to pick one thing that we would do following that class, right? And I honestly couldn't think of anything. And the guy who runs the program himself, he came up to me. He goes, you're not writing anything down. And I said, well, my numbers look good. I honestly can't think. I mean, physical was like the lowest, but maybe I need to exercise a little more. He said, there's nothing you can do. And then I thought about that referral slip. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, I said okay. So I wrote it down, get a colonoscopy. So this is in, like, May. And so they gave us an accountability buddy. He would call me every day. He'd catch me going through Starbucks line. He goes, you got that thing done? Since you get that thing done? And I'm like, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. So, so you busy. I'm, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Like, I'm in the Starbucks line. I'm on my, trying to get my little Starbucks on the way to work. I don't have time for it. The day before my 50th birthday, I got a colonoscopy. And I was at work on my birthday. I was working my birthday so I could be there for the surprise party, right? right for the surprise. So, 
So I'm, I'm literally in a conference room, though, and you'll read about this in the book. I'm in this pretty intense meeting, so it wasn't like how I thought I was going to spend my birthday, and that's a whole other story, right? But I'm in this intense meeting with these people that I thought was ridiculous, but I, I needed to have it, uh, and they called for it, and my assistant interrupted me and said, your doctor's on the line. Now, my husband had already told me when I got home, he said, your doctor didn't like what he saw. He said, I think he's going to call you tomorrow. And I said, okay. And I guess he had given my husband the pictures and all that. He said, but he's going to talk you through whatever this is. I'm like, okay. I didn't even look at the pictures. So he called me, but I had him in my, in my back. He called me and he said, I need you to get to a surgeon. He said, I'm the gastroenterologist, so I can't really make any kind of diagnosis, but I need you to get to a surgeon and I'm going to give you his name and I need you to call him today. I'm like, okay, it's not sounding that good. Right, 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 right. And so I go see the surgeon, and it's a long story. He saw the pictures. He said he had been a surgeon for a while, but he thought I had time. So kind of don't worry about it, but we needed to get it, address it at some point. And then I said, no, at this point in time. So I literally went from putting this off all this time. To needing it yesterday. To now it's like yesterday. Uh -huh, right, okay, yeah. like uh -huh. you will get this tumor out because, you know, I found a tumor. I said, you're going to get this mass out. I'm not waiting and all that. And fortunately, we were this was on a Friday in his office. We were able to actually find the hospital that was closest to my house, and um, we did the surgery, and, and that Monday. And it was over the holidays. And then he called me the day before New Year's Eve, and asked me if I was sitting down. And I'll never forget these words. He says, uh, "I have some news. It's bad and it's significant. You have stage three colon cancer." He went through the whole thing about. He says, "In your lymph nodes, blood vessels." He got to telling me how many. Honestly. It was the first time in my life I just had an out-of-body experience. I was like, he is not talking to me. And so I dropped the phone because, I mean, you know, I was, I was working. I was on my cell phone, and he actually called on the house phone. And so I was working, and I dropped the phone, and my husband, so it was, it was an out-of-body experience. And I ended up having um, six months of chemotherapy. It was brutal. Uh, thank God. For the doctor now, here's what I love about this doctor, because he said, you probably hate me by now, because I just didn't think it was going to be this bad. And I said, actually, I love you, because for somebody who, who thought one way, but you still did your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I said, you did, because everybody's entitled to an opinion. I mean, some stuff you'll see, it just looks different. Everybody's different. I said, you did your job. And thank God he did his job. And when he saw that it was different, he executed another plan. He and immediately called me. I mean, I love this guy. And so he said, you have a, an oncologist? I said, no, I have a gynecologist, but I don't have an oncologist. I'm not sure like most people have an oncologist. <laughs> no, we and don't so, usually keep them in our back yeah. pocket. And so we laughed about that, but he got me connected to an oncologist. And the rest is history. I had six months of brutal chemotherapy. And I had the best medical care, a lot of people praying, a lot of wonderful people like Vanessa and Sylvia Russell just uh, coming to my rescue at work. And it was beautiful. I had uh, consultations by other doctors because my chairman at AT&T, Randall Stevenson, wanted me to get a cons consultation with MD Anderson. I mean, just all that. Everybody just came to my rescue. And truly, that's the story of my life. God and great people always show up in my life. And I got through it.
And so that was 13 years ago. 13 years ago, and you're still standing. So great, great. I'm still standing. And it's, and it's great having you here. And and I hope our listeners are are, are really listening closely to the denial, right? The delay. Oh, just it's it's even worse. My father died. Okay, I got diagnosed December 2010. My father died the summer of 2009. And when they asked me if uh, cancer ran in my family, I said, well, I don't think so. And then it hit me one day. I was talking to my doctor. He goes, okay, you told me your father had passed. He says, what did he die of? I felt so stupid. I said, colon cancer. Know your family history. Yes. And, and don't think that like it just won't happen to you. Right. That right. probably should have sent all of us, me and my five siblings, to, to the doctor to, to get a colonoscopy. Right, and it early. did not. But when I got it, when I got it, everybody went and problems were found. And so they were able to kind of address it. So I told them I took one for the team. But now I try to tell people, handle your business. Pay attention to your family history. Pay attention to what's going on and listen to your doctors and don't ignore those referral slips. So I hope I just helped like your patients. Yeah, I, I, think you, I think you did. And I think that uh, it's really, really critical. Well, I don't know if you've seen in the news, particularly in higher education, the number of black women yes. presidents and leaders who are, have been dying yes. unexpectedly. Yes. Uh, and I am a person who clearly believes that stress plays a role in this. But I think one of the key things is taking care of ourselves yes. and doing the preventive screening and opportunities for yes. maintaining our health. So I, I, I know my listeners are out there and they are going to adhere. I also want to give you a moment to give some uh, words of advice to young women. Ooh. To young black women, particularly. Yes. Because a lot has been going on, and they are seeing what happened with the presidents of uh, three of our great institutions, particularly my alma mater, Harvard University. They are hearing about these other black women yes. who are in leadership roles, who are being challenged, who are uh, dying early. And so I want to give them hope. Yes. And I think what has happened through you, for you throughout your career can help to inspire them Thank you. to success. Thank you. So the first thing I would say is don't be afraid to blaze a trail. That a lot of these women, most of the women that we, and we talked about it earlier uh, in your office, they blaze trails. We have blazed trails. And then you see things happen to them. Um, don't be afraid, though, to be the next one to blaze the trail. Yes, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in this world. Uh, some people, you know, don't support us, but there are more people who do, do support, us. support us. And so don't be afraid to blaze a trail. Uh, my four words to live by are dream, focus, pray, and act. Get in touch with what that dream is. And you don't have to just have one. Maybe you have to just really go for one at a time. But have that big dream and then focus. It's easy to get distracted, especially with all this stuff going on around us. But really focus on what that dream is. Pray about it. Get you a circle of, of sisters and throw some brothers in there too. And pray about this dream and then take action. Because my mother used to always say things aren't going to just show up at your door. You got to take some action. Don't be afraid to act. Don't go at it alone. That's my big one. 
because sometimes we can isolate ourselves because we're so busy working hard, we're so busy working late, we're doing this, we're doing that, we think other people don't understand. Bring other people into your circle. I try to practice something that I call the Hasu moment, H-A-S-U, and that's that moment where you gotta pick up that phone and say, hook a sister up, okay? <laughs> That's that Hasu <laughs> moment. And so we have got to learn how to practice. The brothers, I guess, they could do the Habu moment, the hooker brother. Okay. <laughs> but as sisters, we have got to learn how to pick up that phone. And hook a and, sister up. And hook a sister up, whether it be where you need something. <laughs> it could be you need some financially. You need a work thing. You need somebody to show up for you. Or you need to go into prayer with somebody. Yeah. But reach out. I mean, that's the point I'm making. Reach out because, you know, we're often taught that we got to do it ourselves. And a lot of times we do it ourselves because we're the only ones that look like us yeah, and all right, that. Right, right. But there are other people. And it can be long. And, and it doesn't just have to be yeah. somebody that looks like us. There are people, people. Mm -hmm. who are there to support you. But reach out. Okay. Just absolutely reach out. So that's it. So don't be afraid to blaze a trail. Dream, focus, pray, act. Don't go at it alone. And practice that Hasu moment. Okay, I, I, I love this. I love this. This has just been so delightful. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. today on the Danforth Dialogue. It has really been a joy for me to get to know you. And uh, I know you with the Mavericks, but you know, I am with the Hawks. Yes. And so uh, thank you for the tickets. And I still hope we win, though. I hate to say oh, that. I hope so, <laughs> but like I got them blue, so I'm, we, we hope to handle some business <laughs> and I tonight. red. I uh -huh. uh -huh. we well, you got red shoes, too. I got them red I love red shoes. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Thank you all for Thank joining you. us for the Danforth Dialogue. Our first thought on leadership today is, more often than not, leadership finds great leaders. Like several of our guests on Danforth Dialogue, Sent was called to lead the Dallas Mavericks. The owner called her. Her reputation in Dallas and in other circles had preceded her. So you know when it's time for you to step up and lead. And you are always humble when people call and ask you to lead. Secondly, great leaders can lead here, there, and everywhere. Now, to be fair, not all good leaders can apply their skills in every situation. But it's not unusual to find a person with outstanding leadership performance in one field she didn't play basketball. She hadn't really probably been on the court more than a cheerleader. But she was able to apply those skills over that 36 years at AT&T to really be able to lead in this complex environment. And she has been a great leader. Finally, great leaders have impact. Five years going on six years now. And you can see that this organization has had a 224% increase in women and people of color at the vice president level and above. But she also took care of the business part of it. She talked about the business case for DEBI. Business tools, such that ticket revenues are up by 64%. Sponsorships, up by 100%. 
and 1,625 increase of grants made through the Teens Foundation. The business case for diversity, equity, belonging, and inclusion. She is truly a leader. She is truly what is representative of what leadership should be for all of us who are trying to make our case for why we need diverse people at the table. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of the Danforth Dialogue. And always good health and great success in all that you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.